Welcome to Eye on the Ball. This is Garrett Rands. I'm here with Pastor Tim Everett, pastor at Open Door Fellowship. Pastor Tim, I have a question for you this morning. Uh, we, we hear a lot of sermons. We, we have a lot of studies where they use the word doctrine. And uh, what is a doctrine? What is the definition of it? Is it even scriptural? Yeah, good morning, Garrett. Um, I, I define doctrine as what the whole Bible says about a particular topic. And I think the key word there is whole. Um, what are the three rules of of uh, real estate? Location, location, okay. location. Yeah, so the three rules of Bible interpretation are context, context, context. So a lot of times we take uh, what we believe into Scripture, and that's called eisegesic, where we say, I believe this, and I'm going to go to Scripture and try to prove it. You know, I'm going to proof text, you know, cherry-pick a few verses to – give me credibility in what I believe as opposed to exegesis where we empty ourselves and go to the scripture and find out what the whole Bible says about a particular topic. So we have to read before and we have to read after. And that takes us all the way to Genesis one and Revelations 22. You know, we got to get the whole context of a particular doc of a particular topic. So that's what doctrine is. Would you say that this is uh an issue in the church in general, the traditional church, um, you know, the, wh- whether it be the Catholic church, the Baptist church, the Methodist church, is this an issue that maybe there's too much focus on their definition of doctrine as relates to their tradition as opposed to scripture? Oh, yes. And, um, and the best description I have of our church is we're an independent Bible church. We, um, look to history and look to church tradition, but we're a new church and we're not a part of a denomination, so we really do have to go to the scriptures and find out what we believe. And And I think that's the real problem of of, of church, uh, churches and Christians today is they don't know what they believe. They don't have a, a way of articulating their faith. Uh, a good friend of mine is a bivocational minister and a counselor at a school, and he was talking to a sixth-grade special education young lady the other day who identifies as a, as a boy and she doesn't get math and doesn't get science or subjects in school but she knows all the big words can define them in regards to um, intersectionality in regards to lgbt agenda she's driven by by what she wants to believe to learn the language to learn the words um, I found that that people who have just have hope that the drug that they're going to use could save their life learn how to pronounce that word, but yet when we talk about doctrine, when we talk about biblical words, and when we look at at uh, the language of doctrine, many of us say, "Well, that's not important to me. I'm not a professional scholar or a preacher, and so that's that doesn't matter to me." You really learn the language. You really learn what you believe when it's important to you. Yeah, when you have to explain it, when you have to tell somebody it is yeah. what you believe. One of the things that's really helped me is having a friend that is maybe a hyper-Calvinist mm-hmm. or a hyper-Reformed person, but we have these these discussions where he really challenges me on what I believe and mm-hmm. me on how I explain uh, certain things. And it's been a good help for me. I, I hope that I've been a good help for him too, because I, I hope that I challenge him as well. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we, we both adhere to the the whole concept that, um, you know, she, steel sharpens steel, which right. is, which is a uh-huh. biblical concept. Sure. And so when we challenge each other, I think it, it adds uh, not only faith to who we, to who we are and, and to what we believe, um, but it also helps us articulate it when we are talking to another person and, and presenting the gospel. 
Yeah, great example of what I'm talking about here. Yeah, you have a, a discussion, and your discussion drives you back to the Scripture to see what the Bible says about it. In the context of how it speaks, it's important to know what the Bible was saying to the original audience, and that's why it's good to learn the original language as best we can and learn the history of what was going on uh, to find out what the Bible meant, and then we can apply it today to what it means to us today. So uh, you do have to interpret Scripture in the context of, of the generation in which it was written, the, the times in which we're understanding that we're a part of the Western world. Jesus was part of the Mideastern world. So all that helps to you to determine the context of the, the Scripture. And that's, yeah, context, context, context. I yeah. like that. So here's one of the things that I know a lot of people are thinking, why does it even matter what the Bible says? I mean, it's just an old book, right? It's just an old book that was you know, written all these years ago, and it doesn't apply to us because it isn't relevant today. And that's the argument that many um, non-Bible believers make. Yeah, in a minute, I want to talk about the authority of Scripture, but think about it over 1,500 years using three different languages on three continents, over 40 men wrote a part of the Bible inspired by the Holy Spirit that is cohesive and coherent there's clarity, there's authority, there's no way it could have been possible if God had not been in it. So, you know, we have to come to that conclusion that it's God's Word. And when you hear the expression, God's Word, sometimes we think of Jesus. You know, John 1, 1 talks about, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So sometimes we think of Jesus as the Word of God, but uh, typically we think of the Bible as the Word of God. And I've come to the conclusion that, that I trust and believe the Bible to the point I've, I've based um, my life temporal and eternal on its truth. So that's a big gamble, but it's not a gamble that hasn't come without a great bit of reasonable evidence that the Bible is ultimately written by God. But at the same time, yeah. you didn't just take somebody's word for it. You did your own research over years and years, decades, I would say. Absolutely, right? De- yeah. Decades. I mean, you've, you're, a, you're a seminary graduate, Masters of Divinity. Uh, yeah, I mean, you've, you've, you've had all of what everybody has taught you, but you've also done your own research, and you've, you've done your own sermon preparations for the years and your own Bible studies to come to that conclusion that it is exactly what many others have claimed that it is the holy <laughs> word know. of God. Right. So understand doctrine. First thing you need to do is read the book. A lot of people are trusting in the words of someone else who's read the book. And my dad challenged me in the fifth grade to read the Bible through, and I got a living Bible and worked my way through it. It, you know, a lot that I didn't understand, a lot that I still don't understand today, but uh, you got to do your work. You got to, you know, you got to do the work. And I respect that. And that's one of the reasons that that you are my pastor is because, Mm, uh, you know, the fact that you say there's a lot of things that I don't know that are mysteries of God that have not been revealed to us. And, um, you know, I think there's, there, it's easy to take on an attitude, especially if you're a seminary graduate, you've spent your life studying the Word of God, that you come to a conclusion that, oh, there is an answer for everything, and I know it. And I, I, I hear that too often in, in too many pastors and too many, um, particularly in those that are uh, elevated to a spotlight that is, you know, on a national or international level, yeah. um, that they're, they are the authority, you know, that God yeah. has made them special in some way. Yeah. and. God has revealed certain things to, to this person as an individual that he hasn't revealed to anybody else and that sort of thing. And that really turns off those of us that study the word of God that go, um, yeah. last time I checked your name 
wasn't Jeremiah, <laughs> you know, and you weren't right. in the Bible, you know, and, and so um, I, I respect to, that about to you. To learn the Bible, to keep others from using it against you Amen. and using it against God, you know, because they certainly misinterpret and misapply. So here's a trivial question. Talking about the Bible being the written word of God, what's the first thing in the Bible ever written down? Well, I know the answer because you told me before we started, um, but for those of you that are listening... Um, What's the and, obvious first? Yeah. yeah. The, the, the obvious is the Ten Commandments, um, which is what, you know, uh, God... Well, I think, I think God, most people would say, you know, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created, but actually, where is it, Exodus thirty one eighteen? it said that God wrote down the Ten Commandments with his finger. So that's actually the, the first bit of scripture of those 10 words that Decalogue, the 10 commandments that God himself wrote down. Later on, Moses would have written Genesis 1-1 and most of the Torah, we think. But God started the ball rolling with his own finger, writing those 10 words, the 10 commandments. Amen. Yeah. We talk about the canon of scripture a lot. This is something that a lot of people have, have dedicated their lives to studying the process of how we, we, we came to the, the current Bible and, mm-hmm. and what it is. Explain to us what the the canon of Scripture, what, what that definition is, what it means, why the books that we have are in the Bible, why other books are not in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Uh, simple definition for canon, it's the list of all the books that belong in the Bible. So uh, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. How were those selected You know, to be a part of our Old Testament and New Testament canon? There are are some uh, differences between Catholic and Protestant. The Apocrypha are some few, a few of the books that were written in between the testamental periods, the Old and New Testament, those 400 years of silence. In the Protestant Bible, you have a few books that were added by the Catholic Church. But, uh, but basically, I'm, I'm looking at the Protestant selection of the books that were written in the Old Testament. And uh, let, me, let, me, let me break Let's start with the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written by prophets. Uh, the New Testament was written by apostles who have the same authority that the prophets of the Old Testament had. So same thing, just kind of a different word. Kind of a different word in a way. Um, you know, it's those who came before Christ and those who were contemporaries and who came after Christ or the apostles. So the context of um, prophets is in the, the nation of Israel. And so a lot of them um, had more of a political dynamic to them. And then with the New Testament, the apostles were those who literally were those who were sent, those who were sent out by Jesus to begin churches, who had his authority. All authority has been given to you, you know, to carry out the great commission, you know. And so, uh, but yeah, the, when it comes to writing the word of God, they had the authority to be looked at by leaders who selected the books as they were spokesmen for God. So like in the Old Testament, we have um, 39 books. Here's a mathematical key to unlock the Old Testament, just to have some handles to hang on to in reading the Old Testament. Uh, I want to give you a, a series of numbers here. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. The first five, it, look, looking at that 5, 12, 5, 5, 12, the first five of the 39 books would be the what? The, the book of the, the law. The law. Book of the law, the Torah, the Pentateuch. And then um, the next 12 would be the rest of the history, and I'm going to call them stories. So there's 17, the first 17 books of the Old Testament are stories. And, uh, and actually, you can take 11 Old Testament books and tell 95% of the Old Testament story. So 
you know, Genesis, Exodus, skip Leviticus, Numbers. I like to skip, skip Leviticus. Dunham. Yeah, really. A lot of people. That's a lot of people's New Year's resolution ends with Leviticus. <laughs> uh, so, so Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, Ezra, and Nehemiah. You know, those. If you're reading the history of the Old Testament chronologically, you could read those eleven books, and that'd give you the story. You know, I've about, never heard that. That that is that's, that's helpful. But that isn't makes it? sense. Yeah, yeah, right. And so, so the first seventeen, you know, books five and twelve are the stories, and then the next five, you know, what that would be the next five books. That's uh, poetry. Poetry, right? And I'm gonna call them songs because we have to literate as pastors. So story songs. Um, so the next five are the poor, and, and you interpret poetry different than you interpret history, right? So you have to read Job a little differently than you read Genesis. For one thing, when you're reading from the friends of Job, they're not always giving you God's answers. Yeah, if you take one of one of their pieces of advice out of context, uh, you're taking the worst advice you could take. Right, right. So so again, context, context. context. So, so then the, the next five then, what's significant? The next 17 books are obviously the prophets, and I'm going to call them sermons. So I'm, I'm looking at stories, songs, and, and, and sermons. So what's special about the, the first five of the prophets? We call them? Uh, there's major and major, minor. Major and minor. So the first five are the major prophets, and the rest are minor, not of lesser importance, but they're shorter books. And so um, so anyway, that, that helps me to, to kind of get a handle on reading the Old Testament story. It's really a library of books, first 12 you know, first 17 are stories, the next five songs, and then the next um, 17 are the uh, the sermons. And, and so it all has to be interpreted and read just a little bit differently. Uh, now, the New Testament, there's the apostolic books and the non-apostolic books. Uh, there's a, an apostle behind every book in the New Testament, which would help down the road for the the uh, selection of the collection of the books, but the non-apostolic books would be Mark, you know, the Gospel of Mark. Now, Mark was an eyewitness of Jesus. We think he was the young man who fled naked, you know, when Jesus was arrested. Remember that kind of weird little wow, story? what a legacy. Yeah, right. You, you, you fled naked. <laughs> fled naked, right. And then uh, later on, he was, of course, a part of the missionary team that created a debate between Barnabas and, and Paul. And um, and Barnabas left with Mark, and then, so, so you're saying so Mark at some was point, in good company. He you're was, saying if at some point in history we ran around naked a lot, there's still hope for us. <laughs> still hope. That's right. If you you know streaked back in college or whatnot back in the seventies. So that's uh, so Mark is a non-apostolic book, but most people believe that Peter was behind the writing of Mark. You know that he was sort of the the narrator. You know of the book, and then of course Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts was not an apostle. He was um, Paul's Greek doctor. He was a tremendous historian. And certainly Paul would have been – a lot of people think that that, that Luke and, and Acts was written as a, a defense for Paul before the Roman authorities. And Paul would certainly have been involved in the writing of Luke and Acts. So um, there's still apostolic a background you know, to those. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Um, one of the things that, that, that this strikes me as you're going through this, and, and I don't, it's one of the things that you know in your heart, but maybe you've never put into words before. And it's, it's, it's this idea that, okay, you're not an apostle. You're not uh, obviously a, a pastor. You're not uh, one of the quote 
um, you know, formal leaders of the church, um, we look at Luke mm-hmm. and we go, but look at the impact that he had. Oh yeah, as a member of the church, that maybe what his his primary role was, you know, as a physician was recording historical yeah. events. You know, and and look at the impact mm-hmm. that that's had on our world. And yet he wasn't the Paul or the Peter, mm-hmm. you, you know, that, that we look to a lot of times. Yeah, Sir William Ramsey, the, the great archaeologist of the 19th century, said that Luke had the, the greatest impact on coming out of the Greek culture than anyone, including Homer and all these other celebrated philosophers and, and uh, mythical writers of, of Greek literature. So, um, so yeah. And then, um, of course, Jude was a half-brother to Jesus, um, a brother to James. And uh, James is called an apostle at one point, I think, in Scripture as a leader in the early church there in Jerusalem. Now, there's there's more than one James, and this is always confusing to me. Yeah. I, mean, I always, I, you know, it's easy to remember, oh, James, the half-brother of Jesus. What about the other James? The other one was one of the early martyrs, and so he wasn't around when the these books were written. Okay. So... Uh, and then um, Hebrews, we don't know who wrote that book. Some people think it's Paul. But uh, so those are, those are the non-apostolic books. So there was this idea of um, a few centuries after the writing of the books, the working out of what the collection would be. So, um, but from the Old Testament, we have you know the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found that Essene Library when the shepherd was chunking rocks and he heard a clink. And we have the collection of the Old Testament books intact. And when interpreted, they read just like our Old Testament Bible. So so the Bible that Jesus read would have been the Old Testament would be just like the Old Testament today. And that's amazing in itself. That's a miracle in and of itself because, I mean, you know, as well as I do, particularly living in a small town, that, that word gets out about certain things and it's always it grows it expands and then it eventually comes something that's not even close to the truth and so we here we have an example of centuries of information that did not change that is exactly Mm -hmm. how it was interpreted later on Mm -hmm. and you know a great example of this is is here recently you know I, i had somebody call me and ask how me and my wife were doing uh because they had heard that we had covid which we do not we have not even been exposed to that, mm-hmm. however, you know it, it, it's a rumor that goes around, and and I, and I know where it came from. It was one little piece of information that was taken and stretched, and it mm-hmm. o- and it only took mm-hmm. one hand for this information to get very yeah, very taken wrong. out of context, very very wrong. And so it's a miracle that we mm-hmm. that we have this example of the Dead Sea Scrolls where this information is exact. You know, when have you heard someone say that I don't believe that? Plato and Aristotle were real people. They were mytholo- mythological and made up. But, you know, their writings were dormant for 1,400 years. Uh, the Bible has so much scientific evidence to support, and there's not that long dormancy period. I mean, you know, we have fragments of the Bible that date back to, to the of New Testament to the second century, and then we have the Dead Sea Scrolls that date back of the Old Testament to the first century. So, um we have scientific evidence, but still there's that leap of faith that we must take, that step of faith to believe that, that God's hand was in all of it. And it's easy for me who have believed that God had a hand in writing the Bible, that he also had a hand in selecting the right books of the Bible. And there were a lot of, um, a lot of false pseudo-biblical books written. The, um, the Gnostics who tried to fuse Greek mythology and Greek 
philosophy into the, to the Christian faith, wrote a lot of Gnostic Gospels of Jesus. And uh, they read differently. And, and is uh, the Book of Enoch, is that, is that one of those that's considered No, the a Book Gnostic? of Enoch would have been a, um, a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, I think. I think that's Old Testament, isn't it? And then the... Um, yeah, that is Old Testament. The, the New Testament... Um, yeah. Oh, what's the name? Uh, there's another book that was considered, and it was written a little bit later. I'm drawing a blank on it. But, um, but you know, thankfully, you know, for example... I always look back to Timothy. Timothy would have been in a perfect position when Paul died to have had a collection of all of his letters, you know, to have had a collection of the Gospels that were written by, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then later John. And so guys like him would have collected and and had copies made, you know, for the various churches. And so these letters would have gotten out there and copies of those letters. And then those early church fathers like you know like john had a disciple by the name of polycarp who was martyred for his faith who taught arrhenius and arrhenius you know just two generations from from jesus um, had his collection of scriptures uh the very first evidence that we have of um of the 27 books of the new testament intact the way we have it in our bible was athanasius in a pastoral letter in, I've got that written down, uh, 367 A.D. That's the first time we have a written down collection of those 27 books that we have in our New Testament. But before that, there's a lot of historical evidence of the books that were being used. And then, um, like Polycarp and Irenaeus fought in their writings, particularly Irenaeus's writings, we see where he fought the Gnostics tooth and toenail. So guys like that would have defended the veracity of the the canon of scripture we have against the the Gnostic gospels and other pseudo and false gospels. So there, there's a great deal of credibility, and there's some books written that, that would be interesting if, if people are interested in this subject on how the Bible was put together. But we can have confidence that that God God wrote His book, and He made sure that the book that He wrote was accumulated and and collected into the canon of scripture that we have. Amen. And, and that's something that I think, you know, for, for those of us that were raised in church, maybe if, even if we weren't saved until, um, you know, young adulthood or, or, mm-hmm. or later, um, you know, we were taught, we were brought up that the Bible is the word of God, that this is, this is perfect, that there's nothing missing and that there's nothing that's, that's there that's not relevant. Right. And I still make that argument about Leviticus. I'm not sure that – I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Leviticus does actually have some great um, – some great. it's just hard to read at All times. All the Bible right? is the inspired Word of God, but Leviticus is not quite as inspired. It's <laughs> inspiring not, to it's read. It's not as inspiring, absolutely. <laughs> right. All right, so if there were going to be – if you were going to name characteristics of the books that, that are in the Bible, that belong there, what is it about – those books that that makes them so special. Let's start with authority. You know, they have the the authenticity and the credibility to to be looked at as as the authority of God's word. Um, they're God, and and we have to rightly interpret God's word and um, scrutinize what's the the priority of God's word. You know, the Bible only has to say something once for it to be true, but the Bible does emphasize certain things by saying them over and over and over. And uh, the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. You know, if you read something you don't understand, try to find what other Scripture has to say about it. But, you know, authority, um, how do we know what we where we get our information is true? It rests upon the authority. Not from Facebook. 
and um, and not even from church history and church tradition as important as they are uh, in the Reformation. You know, these Reformation fathers believed that the Catholic Church had replaced biblical authority with um, ecclesiastical authority, with church authority. And so, you know, they taught sola scriptura, you know, the scripture alone, only the scripture, you know, that, that we get our, and this is our different. authority. Even so, many of the Orthodox churches, and I don't know what all this would include, I know the Greek Orthodox is one of those, mm-hmm. and they believe that the Bible is the Word of God, but it's not to be taken alone, that it is to be taken with the authority of the church yeah. and the priest. And, and professionals the, it, needed to interpret it. So, you know, John Tyndall, when Tyndall, who's the father of the English Bible, said, I want to interpret the Bible into English where a common plowboy can come in from the fields and read the Bible for himself, the church organized to burn him at the stake for that. He was Because they didn't want the plowboy coming in from the fields and reading it for themselves. They wanted him, the plowboy to to accept their interpretation and their application, and they wanted to use the Bible as control, just like a lawyer learns the law not to, you know, to circumvent it, to learn how to make a living benefiting from his interpretation of the law. You know, the the clergy was doing the same thing. Man, you preachers are serious about your job security, aren't you? <laughs> That's pretty, yeah, right. And, and that was, you know, that was at stake there. So authority, how do we know in our church when we make a decision, um, What's the authority of that decision? Is it pastoral authority? Is it the authority of a committee? Uh, ultimately, the Bible should be the authority. Now, we Amen. use these and other things, but not tradition, right? And so much of what we do is tradition. You know, the Southern Baptist uh, controversy uh, back in the 80s on the Bible, that word inerrancy became a, a popular word. And um, the scripture in its original manuscripts does not affirm anything contrary to fact. And so the Bible's true in every way in which it speaks. If it's speaking scientifically, if it's speaking historically, you know, it's true as well as spiritual truth. So for example, you know, I'm an inheritance, and I believe that if um, it says in the Bible in a particular battle in the Old Testament that 10,000 were killed, and I find another historical document said that, that only 100 were killed, I'm going to believe the Bible, because I believe that the Bible doesn't speak anything contrary to fact. You know, in the original manuscripts, now interpretations, there's been a, a minor and a few discrepancies, but uh, that's why we use that word original autographs or the original manuscripts. But So, so you're saying you know, that the original language, the original Hebrew language that the Old Testament was written in, the Greek language that the New Testament was written in, that is where there's no error, not in our English interpretation of that. Yeah, it's close, though. I mean, it's trustworthy. But, you know, for example, when the King James was interpreted, it was interpreted from the Latin. Since then, we found earlier Greek in manuscripts that, uh, for example, there's a few things added in the King James Version. And people who are King James only don't, don't want to hear this, but um, um, the Lord's Prayer, for example, the model prayer, when we look at the or the close, you know, the older documents that now we've dug up that were not available to the King James Committee. Like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, right. So, and of course, that would apply to the Old Testament. But, um, um, the model prayer did not have in it the, the the tag at the end for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen that's that's a great statement it's all true but evidently the church added that to the model prayer 
and that got included in later manuscripts that became a part of the King James Version. So if you're reading um, English Standard Version, it may have a footnote that that part was is not found in the original. Are those last couple of verses of Mark we talked about handling, you know, drinking poison and handling snakes? You know, I mean, not handling snakes, but treading on snakes or whatever. Certainly, that's a true statement that God's power overcomes it. But that's not found in the original manuscripts. It doesn't contradict anything from Scripture, but but it it doesn't have the credit, the authority for me to include snake handling in our our worship service. <laughs> Boy, I'm thankful for that. <laughs> okay, so authority. Uh, another word. And I think this is important to state that clarity, you know, is a characteristic of Scripture. You read other ancient manuscripts and you're lost, and, and it's just it's, it's hard to read, it's hard to understand, it's hard to follow. There's, there's a clarity to the Bible, and it's written in such a way that it's, its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it or who will seek God's help and understanding, who are willing to follow it. Uh, it's clear, you know. It's it's. It, I like what Mark Twain said. It's not what I read in the Bible that I don't understand that bothers me. It's what I read and do understand. <laughs> you know, all of us, you know, realize how hard it is sometimes to apply to our life, but we understand it. And the clear meaning of Scripture, I think, is is usually the right interpretation of Scripture. I, I'm a little bit bothered by books that are so popular, where you know, like ten keys to unlock the mysteries of the Scripture. Or all these um, mathematical uh, that's things going back that, to, to to the belief that God revealed kind of, something special to you as a pastor, as an author, yeah, and you and you're going to reveal this to the world and profit from it, profit too, by from the way. it, right? And uh, you know, back to the Gnostics, you know, they're they're wanting to add to Scripture, uh, but the Scriptures are clear. We oftentimes have to become more childlike in our faith to get to the right meaning. You know, when Jesus told his parables, they went over the heads of the the scribes and the leaders. You know, where that common plowboy who showed up to hear Jesus was able to understand it, you know, what he meant by the farmer in the field. So, you know, the scriptures are clear. The simplest interpretation of a text, I think, is usually the correct one. And we don't have to use allegory. Now, it, it, it does depend on whether we're reading history or poetry or sermons or the words of Jesus. You know, they're all inspired. They're all true. But you, again, you, when Jesus says, I'm the door, he's not a literal door. You know, it's a metaphor. So we have to read scriptures in the language by which it's written. When I, uh, Jesus said, you must hate your father and mother to come and follow me, he's not. He's using hyperbole. He's using exaggeration to make a point that what you love second best has to pale in comparison to what you love first and best, and that's me. So, you know, Scripture has to be read, you know, and you can't read, um, you know, Judas went and hung himself and then turn a few pages over and say, go there, therefore, and do likewise. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> and that, you know, and, and it's so easy to um, to have ulterior motives. Just just we as humans, mm-hmm. we, we have all of these things that are issues in our life that we want solutions for. So it's easy for us to, to want to flip to the Bible in one particular place and, and get a verse that we want to apply to us that doesn't necessarily, you know, um, you know, I've seen a lot mm-hmm. of great um, mugs and little sayings that, you know, are, are that kind of make fun of, of taking scripture out of context. For example, um, you know, there's, I've seen a coffee mug that says I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. <laughs> 
and um, you know that's it's yeah. it's so sad mm-hmm. and, and, and it's true you know and, and and so many people like to take Jeremiah twenty nine eleven and and say I know the plans you know that God God's mm-hmm. got these big plans for me and it's and it's not for me to be where I am right now maybe you are exactly where God wants you and you're just not listening to Him. The paragraph you know, below that is the destruction of Jerusalem. You know, he's talking about that remnant who's in Babylon who are faithful. And so, yes, context, context, context. So, and and I do believe yeah. that we should put Scripture in our yeah. head, like, just like the Bible mm-hmm. says. Like, yeah. put Scripture in our homes. Mm-hmm. You know, put uh, put things on our wall that, that do apply. But know where this comes from before you decide to pick a Scripture and make it, quote, popular. Um, and, and also, I would say this. Hey, if somebody posts something on social media and then they put on there that this, you know, came from um, – Matthew mm-hmm. chapter seven, verse two, you better look it up because yeah. I mean, I have uh-huh. seen, and I don't know whether they were intentional or not, but I, mm-hmm. I have seen some, some people post scriptures that it was not scripture, that that was not what yeah. it said. And uh, it was, you know, there were some alterations of words there that were used for a particular purpose. And, and that's where it, it becomes so important that we read for ourselves yeah. and that we double check and that we don't use social media for any information other than how old somebody's kid is today. Hmm. Um, because it is not meant, it is yeah. not meant for where we get our, our foundational uh, beliefs on Scripture. You, you know, know, Satan uses Scripture out of context. He used Scripture to try to tempt Jesus in the three temptations. Jesus came back with Scripture rightly interpreted and applied. I think in a typical church, let's say, say a church has 10% godly people, 80% good people, and then 10% evil people. The evil people are going to use Scripture out of context, you know, like the godly people do Scripture in context. Those those in the middle, those good people who just want everybody to get along, you know, why can't everybody just get along? Why can't there be compromise between the 10% good? And they wouldn't agree that there's 10% evil when it's their brother-in-law in the group or their long-term friend or whatnot. But there's always that spiritual conflict. And, um, and, and Scripture is used on both sides of the conflict. It's rightly applied and interpreted and in context from the godly and the ungodly are looking to twist it. You know, it's, it's Satan in Genesis 3 saying to, John, to, to um, Adam and Eve, did God really say, you know, is this really God's word or is this really what this means? He's used it all along. <laughs> all along. From the very He's in beginning. a rut. He has no new strategy. So, so clarity, look to the clarity of Scripture. Also, um, the necessity of Scripture, maybe a lesser-known characteristic, but wh- what I mean by this is the Bible's necessary for knowing the gospel. I've written this down for maintaining spiritual life, for knowing God's will, but it's not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing something about God's character and moral laws. This gets to the subject of general revelation and special revelation. There's general revelation that God can reveal himself through nature, you know, you can see a sunset and you can think, you know, this didn't happen by abs- uh, by accident. There must be an intelligence behind this. And it can lead you to a general belief in God. But special revelation, like Scripture, um, alone is necessary for teaching us the gospel. You know, we need the book of Romans, you know, for maintaining spiritual life. You know, how did Jesus live and how does he want us to live? Um, helping us to know God's will for our life. So, there's general revelation that can come from the human experience, 
but then there's special revelation that comes from God's Word, and, and it's necessary that we have the Bible. Um, not that you have to learn how to read and write to be saved. Whoever's sharing that faith with us, somebody, somebody's learned to, to, to read. Right, and many, and, of, uh, many of the first it, century Christians did not know how to read. Right, it's the oral tradition you know, you know, that comes down. But. Absolutely, and, and that's where uh, you know, nothing is going to stop God's will. If you can't read or write, it doesn't mean that you can't be saved, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't mean that God can't still work through other people and and them sharing. And you know, of course, we know the the, the roots of Sunday school were to teach people to mm-hmm. read, yeah. um, and that's. Um, but you know, there's a great, you know, great conflict um, in the antebellum America over teaching slaves to read and write. You know, the abolitionist movement believed that if they could teach slaves to read and write, they could learn to read the Bible. They could learn that they have freedoms in Christ. And, you know, the slaveholders knew that that was an obstacle to them continuing to be masters, so they tried to prevent that. So, you know, the Bible is necessary, not for general revelations, but special revelations. And, that, and, yeah, and, and so and this is a little bit off topic, but, I mean, this is an issue that we're having today with censorship, you know, and, and the fact that, yeah. you know, certain things are not being allowed to be posted, to be read, um, and and it goes and, 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 and that's the first thing. That's yeah. the first place that my mind goes as well. Is I'm yeah. like you're you're being you're being a slave master. Right. You're dictating what we can read and what we can think and Absolutely. what we can do. And yeah. that is that is not scriptural. Right. And and so if you know, for those of you that think maybe those that are ignorant should be silenced, you're wrong. Uh, you know, I mean, it it is that is that mentality that slavery mentality and and so we're working our way back into that and yeah the right really to read should be a part of the first amendment just like the right to to um free speech you know being freely able to choose your literature you know certainly is a uh, a characteristic of a free society that you're right we're losing and it's not just government it's, it's big tech you know at the forefront yes. of that you know so that that's a good point really is and then last characteristic i'm gonna mention is sufficiency uh, the scriptures contain all the words of God that he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. Now, I would love for Genesis 1 to be expanded into 10 volumes and know how God created everything, and it raises all these issues and questions that we have, but the Bible is sufficient. Those thirty, you know, those uh, uh, thirty-nine books in the Old Testament, twenty-seven in the New Testament, sixty-six books contain all the words of God that He intended for us to have at every stage of history, both in terms of the history of the church and our own personal history. You know, God can you can read the Bible every year, and every year will unfold another layer of the onion. I mean, we'll, we'll learn more more about the truth. Uh, we'll even ask ourselves, have I ever read this before? Yeah, this is the first time I'm seeing this. But God will reveal the Scripture to the particular need that you have, and it's sufficient. It's sufficient for us. It's good to have books on the Bible and commentaries, but the Bible is sufficient in itself. Amen. Amen. Uh, the four characteristics that you say of Scripture are uh, authority, clarity, necessity, and sufficiency. Yeah, and, uh, and I've, I've got that from um, Gruden's Systematic Theology. 
is where you can look up that, and I'm, I'm borrowing that from him. I think that's so, pretty similar to what's in uh, Moody's, um, the, the yeah, theological. Sure. I think yeah. the words are different, but I, I think it's the same. I would think it so. It seems like it's the same. That's what, the one that I've been through. And, yeah, and, I would uh, think so I for think that. I think pretty close. All right, here, here's the bottom line for me then. It, thinking about our church, Open Door Fellowship, we're about a seven-year-old church. Uh, what does this mean, our discussion today? It means that the Bible trumps church policy. <laughs> Amen. You know, it, it trumps church tradition. Uh, it trumps government mandates that even if the governor says we can't assemble, the Bible says we should, we have the right, you know, the Bible's going to be our final authority. Um, it, as we interpret it, you know, God can help us interpret that. Uh, the Bible trumps pastoral authority. Um, it trumps Robert's rules of order. I mean, I've been in some churches where it was more important, it seemed, to know Robert's rules of orders than it did the Bible when it turned, came time to doing business meeting, you know, in the church. So um, here's, and here's an illustration of how it's worked out in our church. Uh, Julie and I both have strong convictions against drinking alcohol personally. You know, we personally have chosen not to. We were raised in that tradition, and we've dealt with a lot of problems that's come from the alcohol, you know, as we deal with families who've been devastated by alcohol and all that. So, you know, we've chosen personally not to, to drink. And so we're looking at what should be a policy in our church concerning it. And, um, and it's our preference that our church leaders not drink. And, um, and Julie, for example, wanted that to be a, a rule, you know, kind of for her praise team. It's hard biblically... To, to come to that conclusion. I mean, it's, um, you know, the Bible certainly forbids drunkenness, and it does talk about not um, allowing your behavior to be a stumbling block to someone else, and so you can put alcohol in that category. But when it comes down to drinking alcohol, the Bible doesn't forbid it. And so, you know, we've had to surrender that that conviction. It's a strong conviction. It's a strong opinion but the Bible, and it's a desire, and it's a desire, and it's and it's a goal for us, and it's something that we can set as an example. But um, we're not making that a policy of our church because um, there's too many good people who love the Lord and, and who read the Bible and seek to interpret it His way that come down on either side of it. Um, there's strong evidence on both sides, and so and, and some of it seems to have a cultural context where if we were pastored in Germany, drinking alcohol would not be a perhaps a cultural stumbling block to someone else like it would be maybe here. Yeah, so, in the deep south. I don't even think it's south. a yeah, I don't it, even think it's a an issue in other parts of our country, particularly, you know, the Northeast and mm-hmm. the Midwest and uh, even the West. I think I mean I really think it's isolated to our uh, our traditional deep south um, you know, Protestant roots here in, you know, Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, Texas, uh, yeah. Alabama, maybe, uh, you know, but beyond that, I don't think that it really is a stumbling block to many others. I mean, it could right. be, uh-huh. it could be that, yeah. that's, um, and it, and, and I think where it applies, you know, as far as being a stumbling block and I've heard others say this, I think I've heard you say this before, um, you know, that one of the reasons that a particular individual gave up alcohol was because they had a friend that had a problem with alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. as, as you know, being a good friend, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, being the person that they needed to be, they gave it up as well mm-hmm. because I'm still going to hang out with my friend and I'm not going to lose a friendship because I want to drink. Yeah. Relationships so, you know, come before. Yeah. And I think that that's a, just a great example, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. as an individual that you choose, okay, yeah. Hey, I'm not going to touch alcohol again because I'm not, it's not going to be a stumbling block 
for my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't want to be tempted and I want to hang out with him or, or her as much as possible. And um, I don't want them to come to my house and find alcohol and, and find out that I'm right. being hypocritical, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, there, I understand your argument, yeah, but, so I applaud, <laughs> but I applaud mm-hmm. the fact that Scripture runs the rule rather than desires of yeah, our Yeah, right. Heart. And it's hard. And we say it's pretty easy to say, well, we believe in our church the Bible's our primary authority. But when it comes to application, it's, it's kind of hard to work it out. Amen. Well, yeah. thank you, Brother Tim. Uh, this is uh, probably going to be a, a, an ongoing podcast that we have with these foundational so these beliefs. Studies, yeah, yeah, I think that this mm-hmm. needs to be. I mean, it's it's uh, it's something that you're doing at our church as a kind of a not really a new believers class, but uh, just a foundational class. Yes, uh-huh. and so uh, stay tuned. We'll have more podcasts on on these particular topics, just the the basic foundations of our faith. Uh, yeah. Why we believe what we believe and, and why God is so good. Amen. Uh, stay tuned mm-hmm. to the next podcast. We'll probably uh, discuss uh, the parable of the talents. So yeah, thank you for joining that. us and yeah. may God bless you and your family. Hear me, hear me, hear me.